0: Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. Na, 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 na. Yeah, it's pretty good. Well, hey, church, my name is Matt. I'm the Danville campus pastor. And I just want to say hi to uh, everyone at all of our campuses in Hayward, in uh, Walnut Creek, in Brentwood, in Livermore, and of course, at the Danville campus. I also want to say hi to all of our brothers and sisters at CF Inside, as well as everyone who's watching online. And if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are in this series called God Is... And we've been asking ourselves the question, what is God really like? We've been looking at his attributes and his character and we've been diving deep into our Bibles. And today we're gonna be talking about this idea that God is a relationship. You know, another way to say that is that God is three in one, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is one of the most complicated and difficult things to understand about God, but it's also one of the most amazing things about God. And trying to unpack the Trinity is like diving into the deep things of God. There's a mystery to it. It's not fully easy to like comprehend, but there's also this beauty to it. And here's why this is important today. It's because as we understand the Trinity, it becomes clear to us that God is not lonely, bored or selfish, but that God is love. In fact, if you don't understand the Trinity, you're gonna miss out on one of of the key aspects of this love and the richness and the fullness and the beauty of this love. So here's the big idea that God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's not three gods. He's one God, or he's he's not one God acting in three different ways. Okay, the Bible tells us that there is one God in three distinct persons. And that these Three distinct persons make the one being of God. We're going to break that down a little bit more. But first, I want you to use your imagination. All right? So you got to go back to second grade. Put on that imagination cap, okay? I want you to imagine that you are God. And in your divine wisdom and power, would you create a universe? And if so, why? Because you feel lonely or bored? Because you want to be pampered? Because you want servants? It's really one of the most interesting questions we could ask ourselves. If there is a God, why is there anything else? Why the universe? Why us? Why would God decide to have a creation? Well, one of the earliest attempts in answering this question came from the ancient Babylonians. They had a creation myth story called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, there was this one God called uh, Murduk, who was in charge of all the other gods. And he uh, was very blunt. He said that he would create humankind so that all the other gods could live off of their workforce. So they could just live off their labor. What's fascinating is that whatever the religion, uh, most gods have tended to like his approach. And who can blame them? His reasoning is really attractive if you are a God. What's also fascinating is that the reason most gods follow his lead is not just a matter of personal preference. Imagine a God who is the cause in the origin of everything. He brought everyone and everything into existence. Now, before he created anything, he was all alone for eternity because he hadn't created anyone yet. He had nothing and no one to love. Loving others is not his heartbeat, it's not his core, it's not what he's all about. Now, of course you could say, well, he would probably love himself, but we don't tend to look at that kind of love as like real love. We tend to look at it as if it's selfish and not truly loving. So by his very nature, therefore, this single lonely God must be fundamentally inward looking and not outgoingly loving. Essentially, He's all about private self-gratification. And that would be the only reason why he would create. There's this tension here with all the other religions in the world that believe in a solitary God. In other words, how can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when loving involves loving another? Single person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self centered beings. So it becomes really hard to see why they would ever create anything in the first place. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be this irritating distraction for a God who just takes the greatest pleasure in looking at himself in the mirror? And it just seems odd. Why would he create? It just seems like it's coming from a place of neediness or he gives him more purpose that there's now something else in the universe. But everything changes when you come to the triune God of the Christian faith. Everything changes because this isn't a God who's been lonely. This is a God who's been loving for all of eternity, way before anything was ever created or made. Here's what we mean by this. God's way of being God is to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously from all eternity, perfectly complete in a triune fellowship of love. That's God's heartbeat. God is love. And for all of eternity, there's been this triune fellowship of love that's existed within the Godhead. And we get a glimpse of this in the scriptures. We, we pass by these scriptures, but they're, they're loaded with mystery and with beauty. We see this in John, where Jesus is praying for his believers before he goes to the cross. And this is what he prays. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The father has been loving the son before anything else existed. Love was before creation. We see another, a glimpse of this at Jesus's baptism. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son with whom I love, with you I am well pleased. God has been, God the Father had been loving his son for all of eternity. And here he is making this public declaration. He's making it known to everybody who's present in that moment that this is his son whom he loves, who he takes great delight in. As we talk about the Trinity, we have to have this triune fellowship of love as our starting point, because if we don't, all the practical relevance of the Trinity will be lost and will bound to be in this one colossal misunderstanding about the Trinity. And there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the Trinity. For starters, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's not. You can look all over the Bible and you won't find the word Trinity in there, but the idea communicated by that word is all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Now, we don't need to be concerned that the word Trinity is not in the Bible because if you look at the King James version of the Bible, the word relationship is not in that version of the Bible and the King James Version of the Bible had a critical role in the whole English speaking side of the world. But if you look at the Bible, if you look at the King James Version Bible or any Bible for that matter, you clearly see that the Bible is about how to have a relationship with God and with others. So we don't need to be worried that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Now a good place to start to unpack the Trinity is in Deuteronomy chapter six, where it says, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts.'" So before Jesus comes on the scene, there's this famous passage that the Jewish people are are hearing from God. And it contains the one core belief that's behind the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that is that God is one. The Bible teaches the Lord is one. And so before God gives them all these commandments that they're later going to live by, he just makes things really clear to them. He says, you've got to understand this Israel, I am one. And here's why this is important because you are surrounded in this culture that thinks there's a God behind everything. They think there's a God behind the sun, the moon, and the stars, behind rain, behind fertility, behind war. And all of these gods have their own complex systems of being worshiped with all their duties and obligations and sacrifices. And it's draining the life out of you by the way I don't think much has changed. I think we live in a culture today where there are idols all around us. Now of course they go by different names than they had back in Israel's time. But there're things today like money and power and success. And if we're not careful these different idols will drain the life out of us because they have their own complex systems of being of worship with their own duties and obligations and sacrifices. And it will drain the life out of you that God wants for you. It's the same problem, just disguised a little bit differently. So God's making an important distinction here, but he's also doing something else right here. He's also making it clear that he doesn't exist in parts. He can't be divided in parts. This is what polytheism does. It just takes the idea of God and it breaks God into all these other lesser gods who have these responsibilities and roles. And God's saying, you can't divide me into parts. That's not how this works. And so God says you're answerable to him and only him. He's actually making life easier for everybody. He's like, there's only one God, you only need to worship one. You take your directions and your cues from me. You don't need to worry about all the different gods out there in your culture. And so taking that thought further, God has one mind. He has one goal and one ultimate purpose, which means he's not indecisive, he's not split. He's not like trying to figure things out. He's not confused. He's not like trying to finally make a decision. He's not divided in himself. And yet at the same time, the scriptures also show us that in this one divine essence, there are three eternal distinctions. We often refer to these eternal distinctions as Persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to summarize, the Bible teaches there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, there are a lot of verses to support that. I'm gonna kind of go through them kind of quickly, but let's just kind of ex- examine these. The Father is God. Listen to this. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is God. Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And it says in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Here John is referring to the pre-incarnate son of God. So this is before Jesus took on human flesh and was born. And he's talking about Jesus saying he was with God and was God. And the Holy Spirit is God. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So as you can see, there's a clear distinction between all three, which means the Father is distinct from the Son and the Spirit. It also means that the Son is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. And of course, the Spirit is distinct from them as well. So to summarize all that, God is one in being, but exists in three persons. That's what we've been talking about so far. And if you're a visual learner, it may help to see it this way. There is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And as we said before, God is one in being, but exists in three persons. And there are clear distinctions in the Godhead. But what's been going on for all of eternity is there's this triune fellowship of love that's been going on way before anything even came into being. Now, I'd like to just spend like a little bit of time going through some questions so that we can better understand the Trinity. And I know this is a little heady, so just hang in there with me. But the first question is this, where is the Trinity in the New and the Old Testament? Well, we can clearly see the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. And one of probably the best places to see this is with the baptism of Jesus, which we already looked at but another clear place where we can see this is on the night of Jesus's betrayal, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as another helper. And here's what he said. I will ask the father to give you another helper that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So in preparing his disciples for future ministry, uh, Jesus, the son of God, tells them that he will pray to the father to send them the Holy Spirit, another helper. So we see this clear distinction with all the members of the Trinity but another well-known passage where we see the Trinity is with Jesus' final command in his public ministry. And he said, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.'" So following Jesus' command, everyone is to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are identified in the act of baptism. And it's through our understanding of the Trinity in the New Testament that we can see the Trinity more clearly in the Old Testament. For example, in the creation story in the book of Genesis, we see that it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Later on in the Old Testament, through the prophet Isaiah, we see God speaking of himself again in this plural language when Isaiah tells us, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's through these enlightening passages we have in the New Testament that we're able to see more clearly the Trinity in the Old Testament. Now, another area where people get confused about the Trinity is that sometimes the Bible is not crystal clear on the roles that the members of the Trinity have in our lives. For example, is it Jesus that lives in us or is it the Holy Spirit that lives in us? I mean, after all, if you grew up in church, you probably heard this over and over again. You have to accept Jesus into your heart in order to have a relationship with the Father. Oh, yeah. And then there's the Father. What's he doing and what's going on with him? Well, to kind of help unpack the Trinity a little bit more, we're going to look at this question of where is Jesus, but I first need to give you just a nerd alert, okay? Now, I know what some of you are thinking, you're like five minutes late on that, okay? I know this is a heady topic. Just hang in there with me, okay? We're gonna unpack this question of where is Jesus, but we're gonna do it by looking at three different verses that talk about this in three different ways. You ready? Where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is with us. Jesus told his disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Jesus is in us. Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus saying, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Paul teaches in Romans that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus is with us. He's in us. And he's at the right hand of God. And so what we see is that Jesus is in multiple places at once working in different ways all at the same time. And also what we see in scripture is that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so what we see is there's multiple members of the Trinity that are doing the same thing because scripture seems to use them interchangeably as they relate to us. So what's interesting is that the early church fathers, they noticed this too. This isn't like a recent thing. Back in the 300s, they noticed that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not these completely detached or disconnected gods, but instead they're these three overlapping, interpermeable beings. And they had a word to describe this three-in-one dynamic. And that word is perichoresis. Now, this word means to welcome or to make room for. So the early church fathers, they would say what the Trinity has been doing for all eternity is making room for themselves by welcoming themselves. It's this divine sense of their consciousnesses kind of blending together. They're co mingling in the Trinity. None are self enclosed. They're all making room for one another, with one another, which means each person of the Trinity dwells inside one another, not alongside. They are who they are in respect to one another, but not independently. It's described as a dance. The word perichorusus is where we get our English word choreography. And as you know, to choreograph is to have a sequence of dance steps to music. And so we're supposed to picture this divine dance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as they're intertwining and moving and circling around one another to the music of time and space. This has been going on for all of eternity. If you've ever been to a Greek wedding, then you've probably seen their very unique style of dancing. It doesn't involve just two dancers, but at least three. And it's this beautiful movement of circling and and twirling and moving in and around. And as they move quicker and quicker, they're still staying in rhythm and they're in sync. And as they move faster and faster, it almost, as you look at them, becomes a blur. Now, of course, they still have their own unique identities, but they're part of this larger dance. They're part of this larger movement. It's this harmonious set of relationships and where there's this mutual giving and receiving. This relationship, of course, is called love. And this is what the Trinity is all about. It's a dance of love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit kind of intertwining, dancing, moving in and around, circling one another, going like under and over. And this has been going on for all of eternity and all over the landscape of our lives. And it's this beautiful way to picture God. It's this beautiful way to picture this joy, this fellowship that's been going on. And we're invited to the dance in spite of our lack of dance skills. I can't dance at all. All right. This is like the best I got, like right here. Okay. It doesn't get a whole lot better than this. All right. But God, he wants you to be a part of this dance. He welcomes you to be a part of it. The ancient uh, Celtic Christians, they tried to capture this idea of perichoresis with their icons. And as you can see in this picture, it that's it's a beautiful way to kind of capture the rotational symmetry of the Trinity. This is actually a pagan icon that they stole and they infused it with new meaning and it uh, kind of became sanctified in the process. And just so we're all on the same page, I know this looks like the drawing of a fidget spinner, okay? It's not one of those, all right? And if you ask me if you're into tattoos, this could be a really cool tattoo, okay? For a couple reasons. Number one, okay, it's biblical all right? Number two, all right, it's going to be really high on the man. Like, it's so rare that everyone's going to be like, man, that tattoo is dope, all right? And, okay, people are going to ask you, what does this mean? And you're going to be able to tell them the gospel, all right? It's called tattoo evangelism, all right? (laughs) Okay, let's go back to perichorosis. I'm I'm digressing, okay? So after Jesus' resurrection, he ascends to go be with the Father, all right? and the Holy Spirit then comes to be with the disciples. And yet, there's a little bit of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. This is where Perichorus comes into play. So you could also say that Jesus is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that's called the Spirit of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the mind of Christ in us as he lives in us. And this is that dance. There's a couple of verses found in Galatians that beautifully captures this dance. It says this, because you are his sons and daughters, God, God the Father sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that the, and the spirit calls out, "Abba, Father," so you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has also or He's made you also an heir. So we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this unity, this interdependency, this interconnectedness, always in this loving relationship. But that's not all. There's this great Great truth here. And that is that we are invited to the dance. We're invited in. God welcomes you. Jesus makes room for you. One of the great things about the gospel is that it's not just that you're saved from your sins and you have a ticket to heaven as glorious and as awesome as that is, one of the amazing things about the gospel is that God allows, he opens up the dynamic of the three in one, the triune fellowship of love. He opens that up to us, that we get to experience that grace and that love. And all we have to do is accept the invitation. All we have to do is accept the invitation to the dance. So let me ask you, are you living out of this dance? It's a dance of love. It's a dance that's been going on for all of eternity. It's a dance that's infinitely high above you. It's eternally before you and it's welcoming you in. For some of us, the action step or the next step is to simply say yes to the invitation. Now, for some of us, that idea of saying yes to this dance invitation, it seems rather strange because we might be feeling like, well, I don't know the steps to this dance. Or for others of us, it just might feel like, well, it's just better for me to stay on the sides. It's just safer there. It's kind of like a middle school dance. You know, you don't wanna go in unless you know for sure that someone wants to dance with you. And I get that. I mean, that, that makes total sense. But here's the beautiful thing about God. He wants to dance with you. And he's done everything possible to make that happen. And he is a great dance partner. God is not going to bring you out to the center of the dance, okay? And like put you in the middle and then get this big circle around you and put the spotlight on you and just leave you there hanging. He's not going to do that to you. He's gonna teach you the basic steps of the dance. And as you trust him, and as you allow him to lead you in the dance, he'll show you the more advanced steps to the dance. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And we'll talk more about him next week. But in regards to the Trinity, they gracefully bow and they invite all of us as clumsy, awkward dancers to be a part of the dance And all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is say yes to the invitation from Jesus. And that just means you put your hope and your faith and your trust in him. And if you've never done that before, I wanna encourage you to do that today. Now for others of us, the next step for us might be to follow the Lord's leading. If God is indeed a God who makes room, who welcomes, then we should do the same we should do the same. And so the challenge for us is to make room for other people in our lives. You know, I kind of picture life as this big group dance. It's kind of like at a wedding when they play the electric slide. It's always so much better when everyone comes out there and gets on the dance floor. We kind of have to picture like the Trinity again. We have to picture that before God created anything, he was in this triune fellowship of love before anything else was made. And he was completely happy and content in himself. And it was out of his love and his joy that he wanted to spread it out and communicate it to other people. And so he created humanity out of a place of joy and love. And he does not mind making room for other people. He welcomes other people. And if that's his heart, that should be our heart as well. And I believe every single day we have the choice to live like that. Now, we can choose to be self focused and singular, thinking, what's in it for me? Has this advanced my cause? Or has this make it better or easier for me? We can choose to live like that. And we can choose to withhold our love and our grace and our forgiveness. We can choose to not be generous with our time and our talent and our resources. And if we live like that, eventually our relationships will break down. Or we could choose to live like God. And we could choose to live out of this divine dance of love, this mutual giving and receiving. This dance that's been going on for all of eternity. I think it's going to look differently for all of us. I think for some of us, it's going to mean that we invite someone to maybe join our community group. Or maybe for some of us, it's going to mean we actually get into a community group because we're realizing like this, I'm not experiencing as much community as I need. For some of us, it's gonna mean uh, we are gonna initiate that coffee meeting with that friend so we can get to know him better. Or we're gonna invite that coworker out to lunch just so that we can create a little bit more space and welcome someone. For others of us, right after the service, we're gonna to have to get our phone out and send that text to that person where we're feeling the distance of the relationship. Or we might have to get on the phone and apologize. For others of us, it might just mean we get on the guest services team here at Cornerstone and we're physically a part of welcoming people, of making room. And when we choose to live like that, what ends up happening is our relationships grow and they thrive and they become all that God wants them to be. And I think people will naturally gravitate towards us because everyone's been made in the image of God and everybody longs to be loved like that. The beauty of studying who God is, is that we get to explore topics like the Trinity and see that God is three in one, that he's this triune fellowship of love that's been going on for all of eternity. We get to be inspired by that love and grow in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for moments like this where we get to unpack really complex topics like the Trinity, how you are a relationship, how you are three in one. And God, as we try to wrap our minds around that, Lord, there's this beauty, there's this majesty to it. There's this sense of, God, you're bigger than my mind can even comprehend. But Lord, as we try to understand what that means for our lives, Lord, it's becoming clear that it's about love that before you even created anything, that's what was going on. This deep, incredible love. And so Lord, we want that love to be in our lives. We want it to be coming out of us. Lord, help us to do that. May we be the very kind of people that are thoughtful about who you are and how we can be like you, that we would welcome others, that we would make room for others that we wouldn't be singular and self-focused, but that we'd be thoughtful about who is it that you've put in our lives that needs to experience your love. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that incredible work in our hearts. Lord, help us to love with this just boldness. Help us to love with our arms out wide. Break down all those fears we have with love. Help us to just go for it. May we love like our life depended upon it. God, may you get all the glory in that process. We pray this in the powerful and awesome name of Jesus. And everybody said.